Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Yeah, welcome. It is Downtown, the podcast. Indeed, episode number 127. Rich Kimball and Carrie Haskell here with you, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. This week on the program, a couple of talented performers will join us. In the second half of the podcast, we talk with singer-songwriter Patti Smythe, who is back with her first new album, In Forever. The album is called It's About Time. And it's wonderful music, and she talks with us about the making of the album and, and what she's been doing with herself and husband John McEnroe for low these many years. Uh, but we get it underway by talking with an actor who was part of a couple iconic television shows at the onset of his career. He was a regular with Ozzie and Harriet and then became one of the titular sons of my three sons. As the adopted neighbor, Ernie Thompson, later Ernie Douglas, joining his brother Stan in the cast. We're talking about Barry Livingston, who has gone on to have a quite a busy and successful career as a character actor in films like Argo, TV shows like Mad Men, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and many more. And as often is the case uh, when you, you learn about the story behind the story, a very interesting guy, too. We had a great conversation recently with actor Barry Livingston. Barry, thanks for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, hi. how are you doing? We're doing very well. How, how are things for you in these most interesting times? <laughs> uh, like a roller coaster, you know, things, things look like they're getting better, and then they get worse, and they get better, and they get worse, and... Things are picking up work-wise, I guess, but, you know, it's a new world. Everyone's, you know, having to adhere to new guidelines, and hopefully nobody's going to get sick, and we can open things back up and move on with our lives. That would be nice. We're, we're looking forward to not thinking about those things on a, on a regular Absolutely. basis. Well, you have had such a, a remarkable career and a life, and uh, well, I want to go right back to the beginning you you were born in hollywood and uh well it's a bit of a stretch to say your parents were in the movie business but in a sense they were yeah they owned um they owned theaters but the theaters back when they owned them were combination live at shows and movies but you know um they had you know they had burlesque uh which was uh, you know striptease pretty much between between the <laughs> The cartoon and the documentary, and then the B movie and the C movie, and then the A movie. It was almost a twenty-four hour operation. But in Baltimore, my my dad owned uh, two theaters. I think at one time he almost had three. But anyway, that's where he met my mom. And so yeah, they they were more in the uh, exhibition end of the business, which has absolutely nothing to do with production. Or you, you know, it's not like you paved the way to start it because you you had a crummy little movie theater in Baltimore in 1935. Well, you are the third actor that we've talked to here in the last couple of months that uh, had one of their first film experiences working with Paul Newman, Angela Cartwright, uh, Shelley Fabre, but but your experience working with Paul Newman and Rally Round the Flag Boys, very different than theirs. Well, that was my, <laughs> my very first gig. Uh, my, my brother Stan, who played Chip on My Three Sons, had just been cast in that movie. Actually, I was at the audition, and uh, the producers came out and pretty much said, "You know, your, your boy's great. We're gonna we're gonna hire him for a movie." And then they saw me sitting with my mom, and anyway, you know, they said, "Is he is he an actor?" Because he said, "He said, well, that's his brother." I said, "Oh, well, there's going to be a younger brother in this." 
so one thing led to another, next thing you know, I'm cast in the movie. But <laughs> the fairy tale entry into the showbiz kind of ended oddly is that my eyes started to cross, actually, when I was on the set in the middle of the scene. And the director was getting very angry at me because he thought I wasn't paying attention. And it looked like I was not looking where I was supposed to. And Paul Newman, being the absolute sweetheart that he was, he he tried to, uh, you know, insert himself into the, the, uh, the situation and said, look, you know, somebody give me a puppet or something. I'll get inside the TV. I was supposed to be watching the TV. And he was waving at me. And anyway, <laughs> my eyes just were like ping-ponging around my head. They said, something's wrong with this kid. So they took me to the hospital straight from the studio and determined that I needed to wear glasses. And so when I came back to the set in a day or two, uh, they said, no, no, we didn't cast this kid originally with glasses. But, you know, it was already a stretch. I had buck teeth and a Mo Howard bowl cut. <laughs> they thought, you know, I know, glasses too much. So I was fired from that <laughs> my very first gig. But you're still in it if we look closely enough, right? Oh, I'm very active. Yeah, I have a recurring role on Bosch and a bunch of um, things that I've done recently. Uh, Dead to Me, which is a very popular show on Netflix. Netflix. Um, um, you know, I've done the middle recently in years, and um, trying to think of all the stuff that that has come down the pike in the last year or two. But I've been very busy. A couple of big films, uh, War Dogs, and so Jersey Boys, with Clint Eastwood directed, and social network and have a couple of things coming out next year, hopefully. Excellent. Uh, Why do you think Ozzy Nelson took such a shine to you back in the day? Well, you know, again, my brother was on that show, so they were aware of me uh, just hanging around, you know, with my brother, Sam, and then he got cast on My Three Sons. And again, I'd already had done some work. I did a thing with Mickey Rooney from on the Dick Powell Theater. I did a couple of other Show. So they knew I was an actor. Uh, when Sam vacated the, the slot of the kid, you know, the neighbor boy that Ozzy would go to the malt shop, they just put me kind of into that role, and I became just Barry. That was my character's name, and I did 16 episodes, actually, on The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet. Uh, we were delighted a couple of years back to have the great Carl Reiner on the show, but he didn't tell us the story, so I'm hoping you will of his unusual way of motivating you when you were on the Dick Van Dyke show. Well, we were having a scene where uh, Richie, I think was the name of the boy, the son on the show. And he was bringing me and another kid into Dick Van Dyke's bedroom because he had to prove that Dick Van Dyke slept in leopard skin, you know, uh, pajamas. Anyway, when they shot it in front of an live audience, you know, a free camera kind of deal. And, but when they did it, they pulled down the sheet. We all started got got the giggles, <laughs> and so it was you know cut cut cut. Okay, come on, let's do this again. We did it one more time. Anyway, you know we were seven eight years old. Got the giggles again. Finally, Carl Reiner came out and he he said, you know, I want you to think of something really serious. He says, do you have a dog? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I got a. He said, okay, just imagine that what would happen if your dog, you know, was hit and run over. Something you really tragic one like that which <laughs> sort, of, sort of put a chill to the uh, to the giggles uh but nonetheless it was uh, a, a little early method acting of uh, <laughs> memory to sort of where i was supposed to be the shock of seeing dick van dyke was like the shock of seeing my dog in the little middle of the street but uh crazy stuff you know <laughs> it worked 
We're talking with Barry Livingston here on Downtown. Uh, you were pretty at home roaming around uh, on the stages and the sets there. And, and uh, an amazing story uh, from your book about the time you were checking out a checking out a vehicle that belonged to a pretty famous uh, person. <laughs> well, you know, I was doing a movie at Paramount called My Six Loves. This is just prior to going on to My Three Sons. Uh, you know, it was a big movie. You really, you know, Debbie Reynolds was the biggest star in Hollywood at that time. But, you know, as a kid, you've got a lot of time on your hands when you're, you're shooting a film. So I had my bike, and I rode around, and I saw this super beautiful, long Cadillac limousine, you know, white door was open. I kind of looked inside, you know, and it was thing that totally blew me away. This was probably about 1961 or two. that It had a television in it, and I was like, wow, you know. <laughs> we had a television as, as big as our refrigerator at our house. This was like a portable TV in a, in a, in a car like the Jetsons, you know. Anyway, you know, behind me I hear the southern drawl going, you know, hey, son, you know, you, you like what you see or whatever, something like that. And turn around, there's Elvis. And he was shooting a movie on the lot. And Chuck Barris had just customized his limo, and they brought it over for his inspection. Elvis climbed in and said, hey, you want to you wanna go for a little ride? You could see I was totally impressed by him and, and his car. And so, yeah, I said, okay. Oh, so we hopped in and we just took about a five, 10 minute little spin, slow drive around the lot. And, you know, he fiddled with all the buttons and the windows were going up and down <laughs> and turned on the TV. And I think we watched Felix the Cat or some kind of cartoon for a few minutes. And, and you know, it was, it was great. It was just so surreal to think about it now. But, you know, my ride with the king. <laughs> So uh, you got hired, as you mentioned, your brother Stan had been a regular on My Three Sons. He was actually the, the first person cast after Fred McMurray, right? I believe so, yeah. I think he was cast, um, you know, that's why I've read that over and over. And I, well, my brother Stan is actually here. He's outside and looking at him right now. Uh, <laughs> but I could, you know, I don't need to ask him. I, I, it's for sure. He he was the guy that they cast right after, after Fred. And then... Uh, you know, all the other boys. I guess one of the more interesting stories in that whole casting process is that the first, the middle son, who was Don Grady in, in the successive years, the original casting was Ryan O'Neill. And um, they shot the pilot with Ryan O'Neill as, as Robbie. And uh, Fred felt that he wasn't up to doing the comedy, you know, part of his role. And so um, they, uh, they let him go and recast him. And, you know, of course, he went on to have a major motion picture career, so... He's probably eternally grateful he, he got canned. But, uh, yeah, that was, that was you know, early days. 60 years ago, I think it's just September 29th or something like that, was the 60th anniversary of My Three Sons came on in, in 1960 on September 29th. Well, the story of Ernie is a, quite an interesting one. You began as, as the next-door neighbor and then uh, got adopted. And, and and as a little kid, I have to tell you, Barry, I was jealous. I was an only child. And when uh, when... Ernie got adopted into the Douglas family. I thought, why Ernie and not me? I don't understand. Uh, well, you know, you had to have connections, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, again, my, my brother was always a good connection. So, yeah, you know, he, uh, it was one of those things, again, I was, I was always tagging along, you know, and there for everyone to notice. And uh, I was already working quite a bit. So it was kind of a natural transition for me to, to just step into the role after Tim Considine, who's the original oldest son who played Mike, decided he wanted to leave the show, and so they they 
you know, I was like the, the release pitcher in the bullpen. And I got the <laughs> call, and lucky for me, I was there for another eight years. Working with Fred McMurray, I know you talk about it in the book. He was he was a nice man, but but conservative and, and fairly distant there. And also part of the the way to get him on the show was to create a unique way of shooting that was referred to as the McMurray method. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it was very unusual, probably for the older actors. For my brother Stan and I, we just went with whatever they wanted to do. But we instead of shooting starting on Monday and start you know, an episode and by Friday or the following Monday, you're, you're done. You finish that episode, you move on to the next. We, we would shoot out of maybe seven or eight episodes a day, focusing only on Fred McMurray's scenes in that script and his close-ups. And once they got a master shot in his close-up, they'd move on to the next. So, you know, when, when, when he would, he, we would do that maybe six, seven weeks and then he would leave and he would go fishing or a movie or whatever. And then we would go back and do our matching close-ups the scenes that were, you know, already shot, his master, the master in his close-up, we would do our lines to a script girl standing off stage, and it would be our close-up. So, yeah, when they added it, you thought it was all shot in, in <laughs> sequence in, in one time, but it was actually done very, uh, very oddly. It worked somehow, man, you know, occasionally there was a continuity problem where you'd, you know, you'd have a pen in your pocket, you know, in the master <laughs> shot in January, and you'd do your close-up in... in December and you know the pen would would not be there so you know there are little glitches like that but uh, for the most part it worked. Now I, I love the story about you and Stan being assigned the interesting task of getting William Frawley back from lunch every day. Yes, well you know he he was a well known drinker and um, and uh, you know there were on occasion uh, he just didn't feel like going back to work after he had his two or three Cuddy Starks at lunch. And uh, we, uh, you know, that would, that would be disaster for the for the shooting schedule that day if he didn't, didn't show up uh, or it was late even. You know, it just throws everything out of whack. So nobody else could get him back. You know, they would send production assistants and people and he would just, oh, I'm not done yet. Go, go, go. Tell him I'll be there in a minute. You know, half hour later, he's still sitting there. So, yeah, they asked us if we could be the one because, you know, he's he a sweet guy to us. He, you know, he loved Stan and me, but he probably more Stan. He knew him better. But, yeah, we we were designated the uh, the Bill Frawley retriever. You know, <laughs> so you have to go, come on, come on, Uncle we got to go back to work, you know. All right, all right, all right, all right. All right. Let me eat my cantaloupe. And, and you know, <laughs> we we drag him back. You had a great mentor in your years on My Three Sons. Can you talk a little bit about your your friendship, uh, not just a working relationship, but a friendship with Fred de Cordova? Well, yeah, Fred Fred de Cordova was uh, our director for about four years. And but Fred, you know, for the people who are not real showbiz aficionados, was uh, best friend of a lot of really major stars. Jack Benny, he produced his show. George Burns, he directed Ronald Reagan and Bedtime for Bonzo. Uh, so Fred was, was part of the Hollywood elite, uh, and I just adored him and he, he liked me quite a bit as well. And would, you know, we were pals. We were, take me to ball games with Jack Benny and we'd go out, <laughs> go out to, to certain restaurants and bars with him. Uh, he was quite, quite a, a dashing, uh, character, but, uh, yeah, he, he was, most well-known as Johnny Carson's producer uh, for 20 years. I think he, he went from My Three Sons to being 
Carson's executive producer and showrunner. Uh, we're talking with Barry Livingston on downtown. With my three sons uh, wrapped up in uh, 1972, you had a choice of of acting or pursuing education. What what pushed you toward continuing your acting career? Well, you know, my parents were pretty pretty clear headed about the future, as they would discuss it with me, and that they went. There's no guarantee you're going to have a career. In fact, it was in those days it was very hard for child actors to move forward even you know any actor that had been associated in any big way with a tv show it was hard to kind of move forward but you know as a kid you're sort of now an adult not that cute little boy you were when you're 10 um so but i was lucky i i wound up very quickly after my three sons uh getting a playing linus in a hallmark hall of fame version of you're a good man charlie brown which is on broadway and so that kind of led me to think, you know, oh, this is nice. I could maybe do this. And I was lucky enough to get some roles in a bunch of episodic shows like Ironside, Streets of San Francisco, and uh, and then I got another series on CBS, short-lived though. But um, still, all those things kind of encouraged me to pursue acting as a, as a as an adult and went to New York and lived there for a while and worked on Broadway. And, um, you know, so... I tried to go to school. You know, I enrolled in UCLA once or twice, but I, I would always get something that would be worth well, worthwhile postponing my uh, my high, my college education for. And sadly, I've never never gone there. But luckily, I've uh, I've done pretty well as an actor. How did you come to be in a position to plant a little kiss on Hollywood legend Myrna Loy? Well, we were doing, this was one of those really nice little movies that I had uh, an opportunity to do after my three sons uh, called The Elevator, when they were making movies of the week. Uh, And it was one of those movies of the week, and they had a huge, uh, unbelievably great cast. It was like Rodney McDowell, Myrna Loy, Teresa Wright, James Ferentino, you know, a lot of the big actor stars of that day and and earlier. But anyway, I, I... I needed a ride home. I think my car stalled out or something, and and she had a limo and uh, saw me side of the side of the road and uh, offered me uh, a ride. And uh, I was very enamored with her. She was a very attractive woman, even at at that age. This was probably seventy three or four. And I don't know what she was fifty, sixty, something like that. But yeah, I uh, I uh, <laughs> had I had many uh, lusting in my head for uh, <laughs> Lloyd. She was, she was quite a beautiful woman. You've carved out a, a, such a career, and have, you've chosen well. You've been in some really uh, terrific films through the years and worked with very talented directors from, from Forrest Whitaker to, well, David Fincher, who was it, four, four projects, a couple of commercials and two films that you've done with him. Yeah. Do you think part of that is that work ethic that you had as a child actor that uh, they know you're a guy that they can depend on to do the job? I, I hope so. I, I mean, I think David Fincher in particular, um, I met him working on a Heineken commercial, Heineken beer commercial that was a Super Bowl spot with Brad Pitt. Uh, but, you know, I, I I don't know how much he even, he rarely kind of discussed, did you see that My Three Sons in any of those years? I just always assumed maybe he did, but I never asked him. But uh, he, he liked what I did, and then he brought me in to do Zodiac, the film with Robert Downey Jr. and Jake Gyllenhaal, and then he came and gave me another job in a commercial. He was he was a big commercial director. I doubt he does mm-hmm. that anymore, but he, he did a lot of major spots. And then uh, the best of all was The Social Network, which was such a great, great movie. And uh, 
he was actually going to do another series that never came together, and I was sort of going to be in that. But uh, but for, for me, very rare that a director of that that import and and, and you know has his project pulled uh, just for whatever reason. HBO and David didn't see eye to eye on this, and uh, so yeah, you know, waiting for the phone to ring. Hopefully, I can get another shot to work with him. I am sure in Hollywood, uh, people always promise things and don't deliver, but that wasn't the case with Adam Sandler, who uh, I was so impressed with in reading your memoir, uh, being a guy who, who said he would would give you an yeah. opportunity, and boy, followed through on that in a big way. He's renowned for being extremely loyal, and his word is his word, and whatever you think of his movies, some are pretty good, some are atrocious, but but he, uh, you know, he's a, he's a big deal in Hollywood forever, you know, he's probably one of the most successful stars that's ever come out of Hollywood and anyway I ran into him I did a movie just a small cameo in Dickie Roberts child star that he produced and I came I saw I was on the lot one day over at Sony Studios and I saw him and I went up and said gee you know I, 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 thanks for giving me that job and I'd love to be in one of your movies and he's oh yeah yeah sure sure I'll put you in one of my movies yeah yeah absolutely absolutely so you know <laughs> people say stuff like that all the time uh, lo and behold, man, it, it, it took two or three shots because I auditioned for a couple things, but eventually I wound up being in You Don't Mess With the Zohan, which I think is actually one of his better movies. Uh, but sure, you know, I, I mean, I was blown away that when I finally got the job uh, and I went to a reading and, and he even said, you see, I told you, I told you, I told you I'd get you one, I'd get you a part in one of my movies. And I was like, you know, you almost want to break down in tears when somebody <laughs> who's of that level actually follows through with something that I'd asked him probably five years earlier. And he, he didn't recede in his mind, he, and he's beloved and, and justifiably so. He's a great guy. You mentioned your work on Bosch, and, and I was a little late getting to Bosch, but man, that is a terrific show. And, and what a what a collection of pros, uh, both in terms of the regulars and the guest stars. It's just some incredible acting talent that's been on that program through yeah. the years. Yeah, well, Titus Welliver is, is Bosch, and uh, I met Titus actually during Argo. Um, we sat next to each other in, in our in our scene, and, you know, we... Titus surprising for a big kind of macho sweetheart of a guy, he's a soulful dude. He, I think he really, really loved my three sons. He just seemed to like, wherever I went, he was kind of following me, and I'd get on a golf cart to go be taking a lunch, and he'd hop on with me, and I remember hopping off once, kind of early, because I saw, I'd had done Two and a Half Men, the TV series, and I saw the producers, and I thought, oh, I'll just get off here, and you know, early, I didn't go, I'd go say hi. And he hopped off with me. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, sure, c- come on. Let's, let's, uh, we'll go in and say hi to, you know, Charlie or whatever. Uh, and in any case, you know, I, I was I was kind of very pleased. And, and then when Bosch came around, he, he was instrumental in, in pulling me onto that show because I'd heard about the role that I played the medical examiner on there. And uh, I reached out to him. I said, hey, you know, um, you know, if it's at all possible, I'd love to come in and audition. And and he said, I'm on it. I'm on it. You know, and, and lo and behold, I got an audition. And, and then, you know, again, uh, he talk, got back and he said, what happened? How'd it go? Uh, I was like, well, I thought it went well. He says, yeah, all right, I'll find out. You know, so again, <laughs> he, people, people were sometimes really sweet and, and uh, really authentic. And he, he's one of those really super talented guys that deserves every good thing he got. Well, uh, along with your great accomplishments uh, as an actor, 
keeping a marriage together for as long as you have might be at the top of the list of working uh, in the business. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I, I would say the fact that you're still married after your first date says a lot. That was a pretty unusual uh, first <laughs> get-together. Well, you, you, you've done your homework, by God. You're <laughs> a good man. Uh, man, yeah, we, we met uh, in 1980, so it's 40 years ago. But uh, we met at a club, a nightclub, and it was very loud Saturday night. We decided to, to go somewhere quieter. Anyway, you know, 15 minutes into meeting each other, we walked outside. We are going to go to a coffee shop, or I don't know. But we came across some girl that was flat out on her back on the lawn in front of this place. And, uh, you know, being trying to seem all chival- chivalrous and, and uh, you know, sweet man that I am. So let's go see if she's okay. You know, it looks kind of weird. Anyway, it turned out she had slashed her wrist, uh, was not breathing, still had a pulse. My wife, who was in med school at that time, uh, sprung into action, you know, tied a tourniquet, gave her CPR. Uh, there was no 911. There was no cell phone. In these days, definitely not nine. Couldn't run to a phone booth. I had to run back inside to the club, and they called for a doctor. And so, yeah, that was uh, she had skills. I realized, recognized. <laughs> here's here's somebody I, I need to keep in touch with here. So, yeah, here we are, forty years later. Well done, indeed. Well, Barry, it's a delight to talk with you. I loved like everybody else in the free world. My three sons as a kid, but uh, I'm always pleased when I see you show up in a film or a television show because you, you always deliver. And it's been a great opportunity for us to get to talk with you this afternoon. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Yes, yeah, it's been a pleasure. All right, be well. Thanks, Barry. All right, take care. That's Barry Livingston here on Downtown the Podcast. When we return. Patty Smythe has got a brand new album, her first in more than two decades. What's she been up to? What's the album all about? We'll find out after this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Back on Downtown, the podcast, let's give a little listen to some new music from Patti Smythe and her new album, It's About Time, a song about her sister, called Drive. I found a picture of us when we were kids We're out in a field behind where we used to live I'm chasing you, chasing him in a And it's a brand new one from Oscar, Golden Globe, and Grammy Award nominee and million-selling artist, Patti Smythe. Hey, Patti, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Hey, Rich, my pleasure. Oh, so excited for the new album. It's about time out officially on Friday. Uh, what told you that it was about time to get back in the studio and make some new music? <laughs> I said it, I, I could have written, I, it, the title should have been It's About Effing Time, and I'm really sorry it took so long. But <laughs> well, that was too long a title. Well, so, I don't know, man. Life gets in the way, you know. I have, I have a big messy crazy life a shit ton of kids i mean it's just you know it, it, that's it you know that's my excuse and a husband who travels all the time and you know just dealing with life and being interested in you know some you know i, I would always do that you know it's not like i kept churning records out i would i would take a few years off in between like between the warrior and sometimes i was just ain't enough was probably five years you know, I did put out a record in the middle of that, but nobody seemed to notice that, but that's okay. <laughs> but I'm just saying, you know, I would take time off and live my life and then maybe go back and be inspired, you know, to write more songs. But this just went a little bit longer than I thought. You know, the last 13 or 14 years I was playing live and that was great fun. And I, so I felt like I was in it, you know, and do, playing music, but people just kept asking me for new songs and you know i st so i started playing some of my new songs live and people really responded so well to them i'm just like i'm just doing it you know i'm gonna do it this is it i'm not waiting any longer it doesn't have to be perfect but it's gonna get done and so i think once i took that off of it like it didn't have to be so precious just like go into the studio and make a record for crying out loud well, it was worth the wait. Uh, the music I've heard is terrific. The first song I heard uh, was actually watching the video for Drive. It's a great video. Your voice sounds terrific, and, and it's such a wonderful song. Is that your sister in the video? Yeah, that is my sister in the video. <laughs> Thank you. That's absolutely Thank wonderful. Thank you for liking that. Some great covers, too. Uh, what made you select a, a Downtown Train, the great Tom Waits song, and then Ode to Billy Joe? Well, Ode to Billy Joe, I had recorded on a friend Tom Scott's record like in 99 or something, and I was playing it live. I've been playing it live for several years, and people love it, and I just thought, I think I should just have a version of my own. So we were done. We were only supposed to make an EP, and then I went back to Ilya Tuzinski, who was one of the producers, and I said, look, why don't we just you know, do a really, just do a newer version of Ode to Billy Joe, and while we're at it, I do Downtown Train. I cut Downtown Train in 87. You know, with a full band and this big giant production, and I just wanted to cut it with just guitar. And so, because it's it's such a it, that song just literally, you could just have a symbol accompanying you. It's it's just such a great song. So I just wanted to do it the way that I did it live. I, it was a, it was an afterthought. I really didn't know I was going to do it, and I thought, what the hell? Why not? EP to an album. <laughs> what was it like recording in Nashville? Well, I've been, I recorded in Nashville for the first time, probably in 1989, with Barry Beckett. I, I cut Sometimes Love Just Ain't Enough down there. You know, uh, he was the first. I've always been into Muscle Shoals and into Memphis and, you know, like, and, and I love all music. Country music's a big part of that. Um, you know, growing up when I did with Top 40 Radio playing Glenn Campbell and Tammy Wynette and everybody, you know, Johnny Cash. I mean, we just, you know, it was just part of the the landscape, my musical landscape. So I've been going to Nashville for a long time and writing, and the truth is is the music industry in New York is barely surviving. There's no studios left. There, It's really, it's such a hard time for musicians right now in general. But in New York, it got really, you know, just non-existent almost. So it was L.A. or Nashville, and I, you know, I have a bunch of friends in Nashville, and that's where I wrote a lot of the songs, and I just, and, and I knew Dan Huff, so I went down to Nashville to do it. 
We're talking with Patty Smythe on downtown, the new album out officially on Friday. It's about time. Love the song Build a Fire that, uh, well, is based on your now 25 years together with your husband, John McEnroe. And uh, how do you how do you keep that fire going, not just for 25 years, but raising six kids? You know, I, I mean, I think John was really good about, you know, making, you know, just really insisting that we you know, to put our relationship first, that we stay, you know, allied, allies, and that it was us, you know, against them, because we were very outnumbered. <laughs> and uh, I think that that really helped, you know, to keep, and I think what happens in marriage is, you know, because I, I had another song called Remember Who You Love, because I feel like, it, you know, when you do have a ton of kids, or if both parents are working, or whatever is going on, you lose touch with each other, you know, you can you can just be in the trenches, and you forget, let alone love, you forget you even like the person that you're, you know, because he didn't take the trash out or he didn't do this or whatever the hell it is. It's so easy. I like to say kids ruin marriages. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they're, you know, I wouldn't change it. I love having my kids, but they're hard on marriages. There's no question because it takes a lot of your attention. So, I mean, I think you have to really, you know, not that I'm anybody who could give anyone any advice because I don't know how the hell this happened. I do know that we have tried to, you know, stay connected to each other, and and we made a real effort to do it, and maybe that's why we've made it through. And I also happen to, luckily, we found, you know, I mean, I found a really good man, so I'm just lucky. Well, and you've said he before... He's a bad boy, but he's a good man. <laughs> well, and you've said in interviews, too, that it was a priority for you right from the get-go, that, that you like each other, and when you have that as a foundation of a relationship, you've always got that to come back to. Yeah, I, I think you really got to keep that up, though, you know. It's very easy to lose it. I don't know why, but it seems like it's very easy to let that slip away, you know, to get caught up in the petty minutia of life, which is, you know, a pain in the ass, and it's hard. And women take a, you know, we do mo a lot of the work, most of the work, you know, it's still kind of like that, and it's just hard. It's just hard to be do all things and be all things to everyone. But, I mean, it, it can be done, but like anything else, it's a practice, right? Absolutely. Uh, Patty, you were very good friends with Eddie Van Halen. Can you talk for a moment about uh, his impact on the music world? Well, I mean, I, I, haven't, I haven't seen Ed in a long time. I, I saw him when they played this little club in New York probably eight years ago or something, seven years ago. Um, I just, uh, I can't even begin to, he just was amazing in so many ways, such, a, such an incredible, innovative, guitar player and musician and writer and person. He was a warm, wonderful, you know, sweet, family-loving, loyal person. He just was a good person. He just was. And not, not only was he, very rarely do you get that combination of an incredibly, you know, talented, you know, musical genius and have him be a decent person. But that's what you got with him. And uh, there's not going to be another one like that coming around for a long time. That's for sure. And I, I just, I, my heart goes out to his brother and his son, to Valerie, to his wife, Danie. I mean, you know, he, uh, he, was a, he was a good father, brother, you know, husband, son, all those things, and friend. Patty, it's so good to talk with you. have been a fan for a long, long time. The new album is terrific. It's so great to have you back. And thanks so much for making time for us today. Thank you so much, Rich. It was, an, it was my pleasure. Take care. Good stuff there with Patty Smythe talking about her new album, It's About Time. And it's one of those voices, Carrie, that 
No one needs to tell you who it is. You, you hear that voice and go, oh, Patty Smythe's got something new. Instantly know it, yeah. she's She's been a favorite of mine for a lot of years, and uh, it's good to have some new new stuff out there from her. Yeah, she was great. I uh, enjoyed talking with her and uh, Barry Livingston, who has done what uh, not many have done successfully, and that's make that transition from child actor, hugely successful child actor, to uh, someone who's had a long career as a character actor. He's been in so many things over the years and is always really good in whatever role it is he's in. And a good guy. That was a fun conversation, too. Our thanks to Barry Livingston, Patty Smythe for joining us. Thanks to you as well. We'll see you next time around on Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance.